Our guest today started as an immigrant in America below the poverty line and has risen to earn multiple higher degrees with zero debt. And if that weren't enough, went on to start her own business from scratch with zero outside funding and built it to sell for a very large undisclosed sum within only a few short years. Her story is truly shocking and incredible. She is a force to be reckoned with. This is a episode you are going to want to listen to. And I'm really excited to announce that her book, New Startup Mindset, is out. It's a bestseller. I was actually the book coach for her as a starting, a beginning author, and her book was so inspiring that it was the manual I used to start my own business, also profitably and from scratch. It's a gold mine of information. I know you're going to love it. Whether you want to start a business from scratch with no money, have a really successful corporate career, or sell your business to a glorious payday, this is a book you are going to want to read, and this episode is going to hold lots of valuable information for you. Before we get started, please remember to smash that like button. Again, these episodes take a really long time to film and a lot of work, so it really means everything to me when you hit that like button. And if you haven't done so yet, please click subscribe so you never miss another episode. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube. Without further ado, please help welcome angel investor, business founder, best-selling author, Sandra Spielberg. Welcome, Sandra. Well, today we're here on the Money Self-Made podcast with Sandra Spielberg, author, entrepreneur, and startup founder. Welcome, Sandra. We're really excited to have you here today. I'm excited to be on this. Thank you. What I wanted to talk to you about today is my fav- one of my favorite qualities about you is that you're able to pair success and spirituality in such an interesting way. And your success seems to also be a symptom of your spiritual development. So I'm really excited to ask you some questions. The theme of the, the, this podcast is minimalism, mindfulness, and money, and kind of how those all correlate together um, and energetic force. And so I'd love to just start off by asking you a little bit about your background. Um, I, you know, I know your story, but for people that don't know, uh, what is like the, the Sandra in five minutes? Yes, that sounds great. I'll start um, where I was born. So I was born in Uruguay in South America. Um, my grandparents were Holocaust refugees, right? So they escaped the Holocaust. They went to Uruguay with pretty much nothing but what they were wearing. And they started lives from scratch. And uh, pretty much all of them became business owners. Like think of like mom and pop, you know, business stores. Um, they got married. They had kids, my, my father, my mother. And then I was born in Uruguay. So I was born into this, into sort of like this mindset of, uh, being very frugal, really uh, conserving the resources, all resources, not just money, right? Not wasting food, not wasting clothing, not wasting anything, really. Um, and that's what I was born into. And then at age 16, my family immigrated from Uruguay to the United States of America, to Brooklyn, New York. And while we were probably considered maybe like middle class in Uruguay, you know, both of my parents had jobs and we could buy food, we could buy all of the things that we needed to buy. They were always gainfully employed. Employed. When we came to the U.S., we actually went down socioeconomically to become poor. 
we were actually literally poor in the United States. So poor that when I went to high school, I was given these red raffle tickets and I was super confused. I had no idea what these were. And what they were, they were free breakfast and lunch because my parents were so unemployed, their income was so minimal that I actually qualified to be fed by the school, right? Because they were concerned that I might be hungry. <laughs> I wasn't hungry. My parents didn't have enough money to buy food. But anyway, that's kind of where I grew up. And then when I was 16, it's sort of like that's what kind of turned on my hustler. And I said, well, I have to get out of this. I can't, I can't be living, living in this sort of um, environment where um, I qualify for these, <laughs> you know, this government um, issued food. Um, so, uh, you know, I worked really hard. It was very easy to work really hard because I had excellent role models. My mom, my dad, they were working hard, you know, and, and even in Uruguay, I had seen my grandmother work really hard until she was, you know, 85 years old, still running the store that we had there. Um, and so, you know, as an immigrant, that was a really important experience in terms of understanding the value of money, what money enables, uh, what money provides. And so I did, I worked really hard. I got a college degree. I got an accounting job. I always had part-time jobs while I was in school. I hustled all the way to get about five different scholarships so that I could walk away from college with only $8,000 in debt. And when I got my first bonus at JP Morgan for my first job. I didn't go and I buy shoes or a purse or anything like that. I took the money and I paid down the debt, all of it, <laughs> right? So then I, there I was, I was, you know, 22 years old, debt-free from college and earning an income. From then I began optimizing my jobs so that I can make more money, have better jobs, more upward mobility, and then decided to go get my MBA and I went to Wharton to get my MBA. And I went full-time, so I took two years off of the workforce. Thankfully I had some scholarships to pay for that, but I still had to pay some portion on my own. Then after I graduated from Wharton, I went to work at a biotech company, um, Biomar um, Senecor, and then Biomarin. And I think in these jobs, these were still jobs at an employer, right? And um, uh, an employer has some benefits in the sense that employers uh, can be uh, stable. They can provide benefits for, from you, and they can provide a career progression where, you know, as long as you stay in the job, you might get paid more money. You might get promoted. You might get more stock options. So I was riding that train for a really long time. Uh, my job at Bottom Marin was very lucrative, uh, financially speaking. And then after that, I decided um, that I wanted to start my own company. I really was headed in that direction of trying to have my own business. And that's what became Seeker Health, which is where you and I intersected. Um, and Seeker Health was my first startup. I decided to start a business that would provide um, the service of finding patients for clinical trials. Initially, it started as a service, then it evolved into a technology platform, and this was an incredible startup opportunity for me, incredible growth opportunity, but also it was really kind of like this defining moment in terms of money in the sense that I was no longer at the mercy of an employer to determine my income. I was really at the mercy of my customers, and my customers, right, where would decide to buy or not buy what we were offering, depending on what I had put together, right? The team I had put together, the technology, the product that we had to come out, put together. And so uh, that was me switching from being an employee to being a business owner. And with a business owner, now I had really unlimited potential, right? The ability to, you know, truly make as much money as I was able to, to make, right? As long as I had a, a good product and a good service that I was providing to the customers. And then um, uh, I, I got some offers to acquire the company. I ended up selling the company in 2018 and then stayed on till about 2020. 
And then uh, I believe that now I'm, I'm spending a, a lot more focus on the investment part of it, which was always there since the beginning. I've been an investor since I've since the age 21. Um, but I have continued to escalate, right, the types of risks that I'm taking, escalate my learning about different opportunities in order to make sure that I am taking advantage of everything that is that is out there. So that's kind of like the overview bringing us to today. Um, and, you know, sort of starting from very, very, very humble roots, working a lot, but also figuring out what was the best way for me to... Uh, you know, to sort of monetize my skills, monetize my potential, monetize my ideas uh, in a way that is, you know, that is sustainable, number one, that is um, joyful, <laughs> and, that, and that provides uh, some sort of uh, growth component, right? So that's kind of the story. It's such an interesting mindset. I think that you don't come from the U.S. and I think that that's such a secret weapon and advantage because on one hand, you don't have that perspective um, where you get on kind of like that American treadmill of debt, right? Like it seems like you had a better overview. So how did you avoid um, getting out of, or how did you avoid that landmine essentially of, and that like buying, including with your MBA, like scholarships, I would love to hear more how you did that. Yes. Um, you know, part of it came from my parents, right? My parents always said, you cannot be in debt, right? Being in debt is just, it's the treadmill you can't get off of. Now, however, I want to qualify. There are two types of debt. There is bad debt, which is the debt that, you know, you put a pair of shoes, Manolo Blanics on your credit card. You cannot afford Manolo Blanics, right? You should be buying Nine West, right? Um, and you put these shoes on your credit card and they're going to stay on your credit card and they're going to keep growing. So that now these shoes that you initially wanted to pay, I don't know, how much Manolo Lennox cost, maybe $700. Now that you're going to end up paying $1,200 for them because the interest is going to keep compounding as you wait to pay these shoes off that you can never afford. This is bad debt. Then there's good debt, which is when you are leveraging your money to get an investment that generates income. So if your debt is generating income, like let's say you bought a rental property and now some tenants are living in there, whether it's a business or a couple of people, and now you got a mortgage for that, but that is income generating debt. So I want to make that distinction because as an investor, I do engage in having income generating debt, but I do not ever engage in having bad debt, right? I don't buy things that I can't afford, period. Um, and so I think that that was really a fundamental um, concept that my parents really instilled in me. They didn't want to owe money to anybody. One of the reasons why we were able to leave Uruguay and come to the U.S. was because we didn't owe money to anybody. If we owed money to people and we had creditors after us, then they wouldn't have allowed a family to go to the United States, right, and, and become citizens there. So um, that's, that's where it came. But I, that's the concept. But then mathematically speaking, and I'm a very mathematical person, it just made sense that you don't want to have this bad debt. You should not be buying things you cannot afford. Whatever that thing is that you're buying, it will not give you the joy and satisfaction that you are assigning to it. Material things don't do that. Um, and so I think that that's maybe where a lot of the people in the, in, you know, the earlier generation, the younger generation than me, they need a bit of that parenting to them that if you're sad, if you're lonely, if you need some spiritual 
enlightenment or engagement or awakening, it really isn't going to come from the things that you buy. It cannot come from material things. And so if you switch that perspective and say, well, you know what? Those Manolo Blahniks are never going to deliver joy. They're never going to deliver awakening. They're never going to deliver connection for me. I don't need them, right? All I need is a functional pair of shoes or shoes that I like to wear that look nice, but they don't need to be overpaid for. 100%. 100%. I owe you equals I own you. And Sandra and I are both very independent. So it's uh, it's easy to kind of go that direction. I love I love what you have to say about that. I think um, really cool what you say about investing as well. And that's something I think a lot of people struggle with. Should I get an MBA is a very highly Googled question. And it's something I see a lot of people grapple with. So how do you feel about that? You got, you got some scholarships, which I'd love to hear more about, but also did that investment in yourself ultimately pay off? Uh, or is it something I hear from some people that get MBAs, they feel like it wasn't quite worth it. What would your thoughts be? Yes. So for me, the MBA was a good idea. I was trying to switch industries at that point, coming from working on Wall Street to working in healthcare and uh, still on the business side of it. And so for me, the MBA was really what enabled that switch. I went to get my MBA pretty early in my career. I was 24 years old, 26 when I graduated. So all in all, the opportunity cost of the two years of salary plus what I had to pay for the MBA Uh, was substantial, but it, it wasn't atrocious, right? Now, here's the thing. Whatever you're learning an MBA, you could probably learn just as well in much more in a much more relevant way, just starting your own business, right? So for many people, you don't need this MBA. You you just you what you need to do is just go do what you're going to do. And whatever that startup is, that business is, it will begin to show you the way of what you need to do in order to grow, right? Do you need to develop software? Do you need to understand how to scale? Do you need to set up a distribution system? Whatever it is that needs to happen. The MBA by default, it can't teach you everything that you're going to encounter in your specific business. So it lacks that. What it does provide an MBA is it provides big frameworks to think about strategy. It provides good connections to other people who are also smart and sort of like working and hustling out there. Um, And I think it provides probably some confidence for you, right? That, you know, you have this MBA, you were admitted to some institution that was able to grant you this degree. That's pretty much it. So if you don't need any of those three things, then you're probably better off just going and starting your business. Again, for me, looking back, it was an important step. I needed uh, at least one of those three things that I mentioned. And that's why the MBA was a good idea for me. I love that. And that's where, this is where I should mention that Sandra and I uh, had a really great experience working on her book together. I was one of her first readers uh, of the, the, well, do you want to talk about your book actually? I'd love to see her. Yeah. Yeah, I'll talk about it. So uh, my first book is New Startup Mindset, 10 Mindset Shifts to Build a Company of Your Dreams. And in this book, I talk about my story, starting, building, and then exiting my first company, Seeker Health, uh, which was a digital patient finding platform. And what's unusual about the book that I wrote is that I very clearly see the Silicon Valley formula, this formula where you have a co-founder and you're going to hire a bunch of expensive people and you're going to get venture capital and it's going to be written up on TechCrunch. I see that formula and it doesn't appeal to me. I don't see myself in it. And therefore, I decide to just do uh, this business, you know, start it and grow it and build it uh, on my own terms, right? Uh, Without getting venture capital, without getting a co-founder, without hiring very expensive people like these adults in the room, um, and without really getting written about and just doing it, just, just doing, just creating a company that has revenue, that has profit, that makes an impact, that does what it says it's going to do. And so this was an unusual 
incredible story in that sense, because a lot of what we see here in, in Silicon Valley is the traditional formula. And so I decided to write a book about it to share the story and to share some, some of the mindset shifts that need to happen in order to be able to create on your own terms. I love that. And this book, I credit greatly to the success that I've had starting my own business in 2020 uh, from scratch and making it profitable from day one. And I don't think I would have had the bravery or mindset, like grounded perspective that I needed to make it successful. So I'm really grateful to this book and I highly recommend you check it out if, uh, if you haven't heard of it yet. Um, but I'm also really excited to find out when it came to building that business, what are some of those mindset shifts that you recommend? Yeah. So I think one of the most important mindset shifts that I had to make was what I call beginner's mindset, right? As I was growing my career as an employee, a lot of that relies on you becoming more and more of an expert, right? People look at you for direction and expertise and leadership. And then you go and you start your own business. And the first thing that I realized is that I didn't know half the things that I needed to do in my business. Yes, I knew my market. I knew the problem. I knew I had an idea on how to begin to solve this problem, but I had never incorporated a company. I had never hired a programming team. I never hired every single person in my team. I never filed a patent. There were so many things that I didn't know how to do. But I realized that one of the mindset shifts that was really important was to embrace that right? And we, I embraced it via this beginner's mindset that basically says that it's actually pretty great to be a beginner because a beginner is free of these expectations that an expert might have. A beginner is generally very open to exploring all the possible uh, outcomes or all the possibilities available to solve this problem. A beginner asks for help and tries to get resources and build a team that is going to bring some of that expertise. And a beginner is also very humble and curious. And so that was one of the most important mindset shifts that I had to make. I don't know how to do half of the things that I need to do in my company, and that's perfectly okay. In fact, it is great that I don't know how to do half of these things, because if I did know how to do half of these things, I would be very locked in to a path and not open to as many possibilities and opportunities as I am right now. So that was one. The other one uh, that I think I'm still applying today is this concept of single deep focus. And single deep focus, uh, the way that I define it, is this ability to focus on an, a task that is very important to your business and to do so in a way where it is so devoted, you know, so one, like one track. Uh, that you're going to get done what needs to get done. And that's how I built my business. I built it in periods of single deep focus. Uh, we live in this, in this sort of environment where we're all very distracted by lots of beeping things and email and all of these things. And that is not a good environment to do good work. That's not a good environment to build the vital organs of a company. And so I set up uh, this system for myself where every day I would create a period of single deep focus. During this period, I would not be interrupted. I would close all my tabs, close all my notifications, right? Turn everything off, uh, make sure I go to the bathroom, make sure I'm, you know, well-fed and hydrated and all the things I need to do so that I can apply all of my resources to the task at hand. And then generally what I would find is that that hour and a half of single deep focus could be equivalent to six hours or eight hours of distracted time. But I think that's so great. I'm an advocate of managing your mindset as well. Um, sometimes it's, it's not that you need more information. It's that you just need to focus and get it done. I'm also curious, just as a startup founder, there's a thousand different directions you can run in at all times with no one telling you. You know, sometimes you could, po you could spend all day posting on Instagram and promoting your business there. Uh, you could spend all day, you know, doing sales pitches for clients, et cetera. Did you have a guiding framework for how you made decisions early on in your business in terms of what would be the most successful path? 
Yes, I would focus on things that kept the business sustainable. So that meant they either brought revenue, they reduced expenses, or they set up the team that was necessary to service that revenue. That would be generally my primary focus. If I would engage in any other activities, then I would measure them as much as I could. So you mentioned Instagram posting. Well, I would measure that. Does that at all help me in getting new customers? If it doesn't, then I shouldn't be doing it, right? And so many times a lot of companies, especially early in the beginning, they engage in activities because everyone's engaging in those activities. And that's the wrong thing to do. We should be engaging in activities because they actually deliver a customer or deliver a hire or deliver, you know, lower expenses to you. Those are really sort of the three critical things to make the business sustainable. Um, so those are the things that I would engage in. And I think um, that is part of the focus strategy is to stay uh, very alert as to what where the time is going and not engaging things that just are being done because everyone else is doing them. 100%. I think it's really easy to do that in this world too, where you can see the external that everyone's putting out there and just assume if you have six-figure Instagram followers, that means you're successful when in reality, that's not actually always where a business starts. So I love that. And then what was the craziest thing in the beginning that you had to teach yourself or learn from a tactical level? Was it filing a patent or hiring? What was that one just, whoa, I, this is new to me? I think the craziest thing was really how to scale the process of acquiring customers, right? Because at the end of the day, the success of my company rested on being able to acquire customers, find who was doing clinical trials, who needed help to enroll them, right? Who would be open to a new way, a new method of enrolling patients in a clinical trial. So I think scaling that was sort of the, the part that became the most interesting, the most difficult, uh, you know, the, the one that I spent a lot of my attention and time on. Um, and you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because it is the type of skill that it is not always transferable to the next business because it's very specific to the type of customer, right. That I was trying to attract for this particular business. But that's where I spent most of my time trying to figure that out, crack it and measure so many things that, um, you know, I think maybe I wouldn't have known to measure before, but for example, you know, going to these conferences that aren't happening right now because of COVID-19 was one of the best ways that we acquired customers and I would go to the conference and come back with 35 business cards and I would email all of them a first email and then I would follow up and then I would track how many customers exactly they would convert from this conference because I need to know whether or not to invest money in going again to that conference during the next year. So, you know, that, that was a whole area that had a lot of measurement behind and it also had a lot of opportunities to try many different things because in customer acquisition is one of the areas where there's so many ways to acquire a customer. Um, and so I had to spend that time pretty much exploring each one of them. Some as failures, for example, Google ads did not work at all for my business. Um, and some as great successes, like these conferences where you actually have to pay money to, to attend as a supplier, uh, but can walk out with, you know, real leads for, for customers. Very cool. Yes, that is, that's a great thing to point out. I think I, I miss live conferences too. Those were, <laughs> those were a useful business tool. I would love to know as well, just um, it, in the book, the new startup way, you talk about all of these sort of spiritual methods of approaching, um, like using internal tools to manifest external things. And I think that that's a really cool, it, like traditionally in Western culture, we're very outward focused. So I'd love to hear from you. What are some of those great tools that you use? Yeah. Um, I think one of the important tools is to understand your intention, right? Behind the business. It's very easy to get wrapped up and run around 
like a crazy person. Uh, businesses tend to be very busy. <laughs> you know, it's in the word bu busyness. Um, so the so the most important thing is to first understand the intention. Like, what what are you trying to do here? Why are you trying to do it? How are you going to measure success? When can you stop? You know, doing so much and hustling so much because you reached your goal. So many times, you know, I see founders they're running and they're going and they're going, but they don't know where they're going. And so I think one of the most important things in the beginning, but throughout the business is to ask yourself, what am I doing and why? Why am I doing this? What is the goal here? Um, you know, do I want to um, have a million patients go through my system? Is that one of the goals? That's how I know that I would have impacted uh, patients uh, accessing a clinical trial? Do I want to have 10,000 that enroll into a study? Do I want to reach a certain revenue? Because that will mean that I will be able to attract, you know, either funding or employees or whatever it might be. Do I want to reach a certain profit? Because now acquirers are going to start coming after me because acquirers like to acquire profitable companies. Do I want to, you know, what is it that I'm doing at this particular time in the company's history? And that's a, a very important practice. So it's a practice that you can do every day saying, what am I doing and why, <laughs> right? And just write it down and see how it might change as time goes by. It will change, right? Because as your business grows, as you grow, it will change. So I think that that's one practice that's really important. The second practice I think is super important is the practice of receiving. Because many times I think that we're we want to go and we want to do what we need to do in our business, but we're actually not ready to receive the success that is gonna come from it. And I noticed this sometimes in people. I noticed it in myself a little bit in the beginning when the business was beginning to scale and I was getting very busy now, you know, handling 20 different customers. And I had to kind of step back and be like, I'm ready to receive this. I'm ready to receive 20 customers instead of the four or five that I was serving, you know, six months prior. I'm ready to receive this. And because I'm ready to receive this, I'm now going to set up the company so that each one of them can be served appropriately, right? And can remain a customer. So once the success happens, receive it. Um, right, practice that receiving, and that receiving has uh, kind of like a, a spiritual component to it, and then it has a practical component to it. That in order to receive this success and this abundance that is coming to me, I do need to adjust the way the company works, or I need to adjust the way that I work in this company so that it, it can operate at this level of scale. So I think those two um, are super uh, important, or at least have been important uh, mindset shifts to me. I love that so much. I think one of the things that really resonated in your book is it's it's a great approach. It's not that hustle hard, highly competitive, typical startup mindset. Uh, it is more, I, my, my favorite part was when you talked about, and I've since reiterated this to many friends who are worried about their idea already existing or being taken. And you talk about business as a garden where there's lots of plants and there's trees and there's flowers and some might be a little bit different. There might already be a flower kind of like you, but there's enough sunlight and water and fresh air for all of the plants. And that was something that just really shifted my mindset and allowed me to go forth in my business because I wasn't afraid of competition anymore. I didn't feel like I had to, it wasn't like a football game where I was, I had opponents. It was, um, there was a place for me to grow and, and thrive. So that's yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not really a zero sum game in most markets, right? When you think about most markets, um, you know, markets tend to be large, right? And then within that large market, there also tend to be segments. And so perhaps you are the company that is serving the millennial population. And then there's another company doing a very similar product to you, but millennials don't want anything to do with it. Only people over 50 tend to buy that product, right? And so segmentation 
you know, at the, at the business level, right, what I'm talking about is segmentation. There's many different segments in a market and you can position your company to operate in one segment, which is very attractive to your company, but it might not be attractive to your competitors, right? So that's one strategy. And it's the strategy that really I use at Seeker Health, where not a lot of companies were not a lot of my competitors were interested in going and finding patients with rare diseases and with cancer because they thought of them as much more difficult to find than a patient with diabetes, which is a common condition. And so they don't want to play where I was playing. And I wanted to play in that area because I had to come from rare diseases. So I knew that area very well. So you could always position your company to be in a part of the market that you bring something to and that perhaps part of your competitors don't want to be. And you always have the opportunity to differentiate yourself, to show how you are different, even though all of these different flowers and trees, you know, and other ferns are growing in this business jungle. Um, so I think that that's, that's one aspect from the business mindset. When you take it more into the spiritual area, it is not a zero-sum game. There is really infinite opportunities. Uh, they always are. And these infinite opportunities are actually manifesting in a system that's constantly changing. So the business is changing. People are changing, right? The environment is changing. And so at the, as these things changes, change, they always have, uh, they always bring with them the opportunity to have a business. This is very relevant right now during COVID-19. A lot of people are looking at COVID-19 as like, wow, lots of mom and pop stores going out of business. Whichever business wasn't healthy now, it's not going to be healthy you know, throughout this pandemic. And that's true. But at the same time, a pandemic has brought with it a bunch of opportunities for new business owners or for those business owners to shift their business into that area. So I think that that's the shift there, right? Of, of thinking, well, there are a myriad of opportunities. There are really infinite opportunities. And the role of the founder is, be is to begin to navigate, right, this sort of like river to find where are the opportunities flowing? Where can I take my business to, to continue to grow it? And on that note, I'm also, I mean, I would say the two pain points that I hear a lot from startup entrepreneurs is how did you come up with the idea or how did they come up with an idea? A lot of it is, can be scarcity mindset too, thinking they need to come up with a new idea, which isn't the case, like you mentioned. So I'd love to know, uh, for you, I love your story because the American dream is very shark tank, very business to consumer. Uh, but I'd love to know for from you, what gave you this idea? Did it come to you in a dream or is it something you strategically wrote down on a piece of paper? I want to do an agency, B2B, et cetera. No, the idea came from working at my employers, right? So prior to starting Seeker Health, I had worked at two biopharmaceutical companies, both of which struggled to find the patients that they were looking for. And so um, that's where the idea came from. It didn't come to me in a dream, although it could have, but it didn't. It came to me as I was working. I was working as an employee. Uh, these companies are struggling. They can't find the patients they're looking for. At the same time, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Google. I know where these patients are. They're on Facebook. They're on Google. Now they would be on Instagram too. And, uh, and so the concept was that, well, let's bring these two together. Uh, Biopharma is unlikely to go directly to Facebook to find the patient. So they need an intermediary to process that patient. And the patients um, are going to want some information and to be provided in a way that honors their privacy um, and, you know, honors their need for to be educated and informed about what's available to them. And so that's what became Seeker Health in the beginning, which was placing um, campaigns on Facebook and on Google to find patients for clinical trials. As customers came to buy that part of the, of the service, then it was very clear that I had to build more, that they wanted 
the one or more comprehensive uh, service and platform that not only provided finding the patient, but also provided the service of pre-screening the patient for that specific clinical trial, maintaining their data, and then connecting that patient with the hospital where they could actually be enrolled. And so that's how we continue to build. But ideas, in my opinion, generally come from trying to solve a problem. So, um, you know, for entrepreneurs, my advice is always find problems, find something that's a problem. It's either a problem for you as a user, it's a problem for a company that you work for, and then begin to develop a solution that can help. And in the beginning, the solution can be part of the solution. It, it can be incomplete because in the case of my company, for the first year, the solution was incomplete. And then we continue to work to complete the solution, right, and provide an end-to-end -end platform that, that solves the problem. That's where ideas come from. The best ideas, I come from that. They come from somebody has a problem and you're going to fix it. I love that because I think that's the kind of thing that can keep you above water in wartime or pandemic time. You know, if you just keep looking to solve the problem, that problem still exists even when we're all stuck at home or when things are as normal. So I think that that's actually what will help you survive and as things change, as the environment changes. Very cool. And then I must ask um, another pain point that I hear from a lot of entrepreneurs are, is wanting to sell their business, which I hear, especially I've heard in your book, is an exciting yet very stressful and interesting time to navigate. What was that like for you? And do you have any advice for people who want to go through that process? Yeah. So what it was like for me is around the year three, uh, the first company came and wanted to understand what we were working on. Uh, this was an adjacent company. They were contemplating whether to create uh, what we were, had done on their own or to buy it. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting because as a founder, you kind of don't know if they're just going to, if they're going to be honest and do that, or if they're just kind of trying to get intelligence, but they were honest. I usually try to trust the universe and the people that come my way, as long as they don't give me a horrible, you know, uh, feeling. And so the, the first company came and we went into this whole process of figuring out what an offer would be. Uh, they wrote a letter of intent. I signed that letter of intent and then we went into due diligence. And part of the diligence was to sort of um, attempt to sell together to, to see if we could go into some customer uh, sales opportunities and be able to monetize them. And we ran into some difficulties with that. It wasn't quite gelling together. Um, around that time, I got a second company that came to talk to me and I couldn't talk to them because in the first one I had signed an exclusivity agreement, which is pretty standard when you start negotiating and going into due diligence with a partner uh, that's going to acquire. So I told them to wait for me because I couldn't talk to them right, right there and then. Um, and then uh, with company one, you know, decided to, to not pursue that anymore. It just, you know, it really didn't feel like the right fit. Um, so I went to company two. It was good to have company two there because then it's like, okay, well, let's see what company two has to offer. And then company two also, um, well, had a completely different offer. The valuation had gone up, but the deal that they were proposing wasn't really attract attractive to me. And then around that time, I decided to get a coach. And the reason I decided to get a coach was because this felt like probably the biggest decision that I would make in the business for a long time and in my life for a long time. And that it would be really good to have someone that one, maybe had already sold a business uh, and two, somebody who could um, validate my thinking, right? My thinking, my feeling in this case. Uh, and so I got a coach. We went through an entire process to figure out, uh, should I sell Seeker Health this year or should I hold it and continue to operate it? And in that process, what came out for me was that, yes, I was interested in selling the company. Why? Because I had built it very fast during this period of three years. And now it was time to either give it to somebody else who would take it to the next level or begin to invest in a different way to take it to the next level without really having any security as to whether or not I would be able to, to 
cash out the value that I had built. Um, and so around that time, uh, a third company came around also inquiring about Seeker Health. And, um, you know, by now I had a lot more clarity from having worked with a coach as to what I wanted a deal to look like. We worked on that on a list of terms that I was looking for, you know, what the valuation should be. Uh, if they wanted me to stay as an employee for the integration period, how long I was willing to do that, uh, how they would retain the current employees, the location of the company all of these different things. And so um, with this third company, I was able to tell them exactly what I wanted. And they didn't walk away. They didn't, you know, they didn't hang up on me. <laughs> uh, instead, they did the opposite. They sent me a letter of intent and um, we negotiated that. And then I signed it. And then we went into due diligence. And I think, you know, one of the key things for people who are thinking about selling the company is that I think there are two types of sales. One sale is where the company is just buying, the acquirer is just trying to buy the product, the brand, something about it, something that is like a little bit more intangible. Um, and that's what they're looking to buy. And in that case, maybe the financial performance might or might not matter as much. But the majority of the sales that I see out there are where a company is acquire another company because they have revenue, because they have profit, because they have customers. They're not really interested in acquiring something that they're going to have to build from scratch. They want to acquire something that's already pretty built, right? And so the reason why I was getting these offers was that I had revenue. You know, I was serving 40 plus biopharmaceutical customers in the B2B space. I was, I had profit, right? The thing was scaling well. And so that's what they were looking to buy. Now, by the time a company comes to buy the company, um, pretty much the, as a founder, it's really important to have all your ducks in a row, right? So, you know, the financial closing process every month, that needs to be squeaky clean. All your incorporation documents, they all need to be accessible and squeaky clean. All your hiring records, accessible and squeaky clean. So, you know, it's important to let that know to founders because many times I see some founders kind of like um, deprioritizing the back office of the business because it's like, oh, you know, most of us are not super thrilled about doing accounting and, you know, these things, but they're really important. And when a, an acquirer is going to come to acquire you, they're going to expect you to have financial statements, right? They're in clean shape and, um, you know, well substantiated. So, you know, you either you do it yourself or hopefully when your business has enough cash flow coming in, you can hire an accounting firm who can do this work for you. I love that. Yep. That's probably, it's thanks to your book. I got off on the right foot with that part of things, but it's definitely not my favorite way to spend a Friday. Did your uh, CPA background really help you with that though from beginning to end? I believe so. Yes. I believe um, that background definitely helped me. And still with my background as a, as a CPA, I still feel like I had to do some growth to really understand the types of records that I had to keep, how to keep everything organized and really easily accessible, um, you know, for a future acquirer. So there's still, there's always room for learning and doing it, I think, better. Absolutely. I love that. I mean, it's such a great story too. What I'm really curious about as well is what was that like emotionally? And I love these tools that you talk about in your book in terms of what it's like to ride that ride because you don't know what's going to come out of it. And now we're at the other side and we can celebrate and talk about it. But what was it like in the moment? Yeah, it was pretty intense, I have to say. I think that was the most intense period of um, of running the company. Because during the exit period, and I'm referring to the time where I have a signed letter of intent from an acquirer, there's due diligence happening. And there are also, at the same time, 40 customers to be served, right? And so um, it was the most intense time in the sense that it felt like I had to move these two things along 
uh, at the same time. There was, there was no option to let one not move along. So I had to move the acquisition along and participate in the due diligence, which was really a full-time job. And at the same time, I had to do my full-time job, which was running the company and servicing the, the customers and motivating the team and coaching the team. And so you know, the acquisition is not done until it's done. So until that purchase agreement gets signed and the money gets wired or whatever, the stock gets transferred in some way, then the acquisition is not done. And so it could evaporate. Um, But if that evaporated, I wanted to make sure that the business wouldn't evaporate, right? Because the business still needed to be built, still needed to be tended to. And so I think that that was a very uh, intense, very, um, very active time Really, I was working more than two jobs during that time. And, you know, after the acquisition was done, it was this sort of like this relief of like, well, at least it didn't evaporate. And at least the business is still in really good shape, still growing, right? Because I couldn't put it on hold uh, in case the acquisition prospect evaporated. Uh, So I, I recall after the acquisition sort of feeling very uh, elated, sort of like, oh my God, this really kind of feels like a once in a lifetime type of thing. And, you know, uh, it's not that many companies, especially of the size that my company was, that get acquired. Um, and, you know, sort of, it sort of felt like a great success. But at the same time, it felt like, whoa, and I need to rest. I, I need to recover somehow from this effort. Uh, and, of course, we have to go straight into integration and integrate the company. And we got a new office. And, you know, we did all these things. So there really wasn't a good time to rest, even though I had, I needed to rest. So that, that was definitely very um, intense for me. I can imagine, but that's what I really also love about your book. So for me, as somebody that's trying to be productive and successful, there's just a lot of tech stuff about waking up at 5am and then taking a cold shower and meditating and exercise, you know, and there's like, which is great. I'm all about that. However, I find that sometimes it's hard to balance like the, that routine with the work you need to do. And then of course, it's so easy to just sit at your computer for 12 to 14 hours and potentially burn yourself out. So I know you touch upon that in your book. What are your strategies to maintain that kind of, um, inner growth and, uh, rest when you're trying to accomplish all these things at once? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the most important thing is that burnout is really not a good investment. So basically, it might take you like six weeks of really hard work to burn out, and then it will take you six months to recover from that burnout. So uh, all in all, from my experience in the past, before I even started Seeker Health, I know that burnout is not a good strategy. So I'm always on the side of burnout is not a possibility. So therefore, what do I need to do in order to be able to create in a sustainable way? And so I think it depends on who you are. But for me, I know that there are like a few things that I need in my life in order not to be burning out. So um, I need sleep. And so I'm going to get that sleep, right? And I know if I get the right sleep and the, the enough hours of sleep, I'm actually going to produce better than if I didn't get that sleep. So That's number one. Um, I need to have a life, right? I mean, I I am a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a friend, I'm a daughter, I'm a sister. So I I need to have a life. I need to be engaged in these people's lives. I'm not going to disappear because I'm building this business. I need them and they need me, right? It's a... it's a mutual relationship. All these are mutual relationships. So I need those relationships in my life. And then the last thing is that I need to continue growing as a person, right? So that's a requirement for me as well at this time. I'm going to be building a business, but that business cannot be at the expense of my emotional development, my spiritual development, my personal development. So I need to have time to grow myself and whatever that may be. That may be, I don't know, like a fitness challenge, or it might be uh, attending some sort of workshop or retreat that I want to do. Like that personal time needs to exist for myself. 
And so I think, um, you know, for each person, it might be a little bit different, but in general, those are three of the basic things that are required in order to have a balanced life where you're not burning out. Uh, and again, burnout recovery is very intense and it's going to take way too long. It's going to put you out of the work uh, in the way that you want to be working for too long to be a good investment. I 100% agree. I am speaking as somebody who did burn out and used to think it was like a badge of honor to overwork. Uh, It's absolutely not worth it. And that kind of brings us back to that investment. There's good debt and bad debt. And I'd say burnout is the worst kind of debt that you can get yourself into. Well, this has been wonderful, Sandra. I thank you so much for taking the time. Just it's like a goldmine of information talking to you. Uh, You've been through it all. You've done it all. Where can we find you? Where can we find your book and learn more about you and get in touch? Yes, uh, my website is my name, sandraspielberg.com. Uh, on the website, there's information about the book, which is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound. Uh, and there's also a lot of other videos and uh, other interviews that I've done that talk about how the company was built and what I've learned from it. Yes, this is just a sneak peek. The book is incredible and it has changed my life. So I highly recommend it. Even if you're not starting a business, it it gives you so many tips on just how to be successful and a whole complete person and and more mindful. So wonderful. Thanks again, Sandra. It's been really great connecting today. Any final words of wisdom that you'd like to share before we sign off? Thank you for the time. It was wonderful to hear that the book had an impact on your life. That's why I wrote it, to really show people that there's a different way to create that doesn't have to be this all-consuming way that at the end of the day ends up not being a good thing for you. And then I think the, the final words, you know, since we started talking about money and minimalism is that, you know, money is an enabler at the end of the day. It enables you to have freedom. It enables you to spend it on the things that are meaningful to you. It enables you to help people. And I think when you approach it from that perspective versus the perspective of acquiring material goods that don't deliver any long lasting joy, then money starts flowing to you in the right way. That is beautiful. Yes. If you can look at it in an energetic type way, it it really changes the game. So wonderful. All right. Well, thank you again, Sandra. This is so, this means the world that you came on the show and uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what you do next. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Sandra, for coming on the show. I normally take this moment to rehash, rediscuss, and recap really wonderful pearls of wisdom from our guest. But this time I have something a little bit different for you. First of all, I do include a recap of all of Sandra's wisdom on the website, moneyselfmade.com. And I also have a bonus free chapter of her book for you. She has been kind enough to share a free chapter of her book with us. Just go check out moneyselfmade.com and you can see this week's show notes and blogs and you can download a book chapter of hers for free. And I give you my full review of the book, including a TL. LDR 10 bullet point guide on how you can also follow Sandra's new startup mindset way and start and build a profitable company from scratch. You can find Sandra's takeaway and blog at moneyselfmade.com forward slash how to start a startup, but dashes where all the spaces should be. I hope you get a lot out of the free chapter and I hope you love today's episode. As always, please click that like button. I really appreciate it. If you haven't done so yet, please click subscribe. We're available on iTunes and YouTube. And if you haven't left a review for the show, I would absolutely love it if you would please write a review. If you got anything valuable out of this episode, I'm going to start doing a special feature where I call out people who have left a review, good or bad. I'm going 
going to read it live on the show and talk about my response. So if you want me to hear what you think of the show, please comment on YouTube or write a review. I cannot wait to hear all of your feedback because I want to make the show even more awesome for you. Let us know what you think. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. I am going to be traveling for the next few weeks. So this is the last episode I'm filming in New Mexico. I'm really excited to be on a real estate investing journey across the nation. So I'm going to be in Texas, Tennessee, and Georgia. And I'm looking for great travel tips, places to eat, things to do and see, people to hang out with in a socially distanced way while wearing masks. So if you have any tips for me, or if you want to follow my exciting travel adventures, please tweet at me. It's at Fate Favors or Instagram, which is Elise Wins, A-L-I-S-E-W-I-N-S. So I hope I see you on Instagram or Twitter. Tweet at me all of your travel recommendations, and maybe I'll see a few of you as I tour the country. Thank you for tuning in. I will see you next week from Texas.